Last week, um, I wonder if you could turn me down just a touch. It feels quite, um, even I'm thinking I sound loud at that point. Um, uh, last week, um, uh, Steve um, preached around the wisdom of the cross, uh, it, the first in a, a series of sermons that will be focusing on the cross between now and Easter. We are in, as many of you will be aware, uh, the season of Lent, that sort of run-up period. And for some of you, um, you'll have taken the opportunity during this period to uh, give some stuff up. I don't know, maybe. I'd be kind of interested in any of you doing that sort of stuff. Any of you giving anything up? No, you're a content bunch. Oh, Nat- uh, Natalie, just Natalie. She, oh, I think she could do it on behalf of all of us. Um, <laughs> And, um, and of course, for some people, it, rather than giving stuff up, some of you take up new stuff and you do new stuff. Any of you doing some... I'm not even beginning to ask that question. I don't think, that, I, think I know the answer to that question. Um, but for... Historically, Lent has been this sort of time, and even now non-Christians would do it. They give something up for the period between uh, Ash Wednesday and, um, and, and Easter. The interesting thing is that, of course, just giving things up can make it without wanting to ever imagine that that's why you're doing it. But it can make it just about you. Whereas actually Lent really is about the cross and about the passion of Jesus and about the fact that actually he was going to go to the cross and die and rise again. And so we felt it was a sort of useful period for us to think through, well, what difference does the cross make? There's always a bit of a danger that as a Christian, what we do is we change our own faith into something that it was never designed to be. It's easy for the Christian faith to end up being just do good and be nice and try and please God. Whereas actually the heart of it is God came in flesh and the most basic way to explain it is that Christ died for our sins. So it's, it's a, as a basic as it gets. But if you can imagine a sort of a diamond, a big diamond, and imagine that a light source was being shone on it, you'd see refraction going on all the time in different ways. And in a sense, what happens is when we say Christ died for our sins, it's almost like, yeah, but, but what does that mean for us? And what we want to do in these six weeks is just sort of shine the light on different aspects of what does the cross actually mean? And as I said, last week, Steve uh, took the first of those. And I was, gonna, I, was, I, I was all ready to sit down and listen to it. And then I realized they only recorded one second of his sermon. It was a very good second, um, but um, it then led to a few interchanges between people going, I think that's appropriate length for a sermon, and uh, why doesn't Neil do that every time? Um, So I'm going to take a little longer than that, but um, to look at the power of the cross. I'm going to read together. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can uh, get hold of one. Um, From chapter 2 of Colossians, it's there, and verse 13 to 15, just three shortish verses. This is Paul explaining to a group of Christians who were living in a town 
Um, and it wasn't, um, the town of Colossae was not uh, a big, bustling, metropolitan place. Uh, without being unkind, Colossae was like Eccles. <laughs> and when I say I'm not being unkind, I mean I'm not being unkind to Colossae. <laughs> It kind of was like Eccles. It was like this little town where it was a bit... Gro- I, 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 anyway, we'll stop. But it didn't have a lot going for it. It was just like Eccles, perhaps with a, a history that was better than its present. And the people who were in the church in Colossae would have been just skilled, semi-skilled artisan workers. They'd have been the equivalent of folks that we would know as plasterers or joiners or electricians. Really helpful, really useful. They're not the high echelons of society, but they keep society going. Colossi was like that. It would later have a, an earthquake and it would really struggle to get to, to recover from it. It was, it, was, it was a difficult place. So when you read Colossians, it's, it's always easy to forget that these were, this was a letter written to ordinary people who would read it on a Sunday after they'd done a full day's work, who lived in somewhere like Eccles, who didn't, who weren't sort of reading it for a theological treatise. They were reading it to say, so how do I live? Well, this is what Paul said about the cross. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it, nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Come to that in a moment, but um, at the beginning of uh, that chapter, um, in the message translation paraphrase, it kind of illustrates what Paul's trying to do for these people who lived in that town. I want you woven into a tapestry of love, in touch with everything there is to know of God. And then you'll have minds confident and at rest, focused on Christ, God's great mystery. All the richest treasures of wisdom and knowledge are embedded in that mystery and nowhere else. And we've been shown the mystery. I'm telling you this because I don't want anyone leading you off on some wild goose chase after other so-called mysteries or the secret. Well, Paul's writing to a people who's going, he says, what I want you to know is to be so secure in who Jesus is that you're not led astray by people who go, the latest thing is, or if you really want to know what God is like, then you've got to do this. I just want you to know the significance of Jesus. And I think the message puts it well. So a few verses later, when he, the bit we read, he says, once you were dead in your sins, but... God made you alive. He brought you back. Once you could only see life through a sort of a very narrow view, but actually God introduced the breadth of all that your life could be. Once your life was small, but God brought you alive. 
He forgave you your sins. That stuff that meant it was really difficult to live in the light. That stuff that made it really difficult to be honest. That's forgiven. God's for you, not against you. God's on your side. And he cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. And I think what he's thinking about, uh, for those people who had a Jewish background, he goes, you know there were things that God had asked you not to do, but you did. You know, even in your own conscience, there were things that you went against your own conscience. Your, your own conscience. And you felt guilty about it, but he says, what happened is, on the cross, that charge sheet was pinned to the cross, and you were set free. So you don't need to look back with shame. You don't need to look back and go, actually, if they only knew. Because actually, that has been pinned to the cross. You can be free. And then he says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, or in some versions, the principalities and powers, or rulers and principalities, some language like that, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And that's the bit I actually want to think about with you. That he takes the powers, the forces, and he triumphs over them. When Jesus was killed, you know the story really well. What the Romans did, you see, in a sense, for us, Jesus is like the center of, it is kind of like the center of the universe. Everything only makes sense through Jesus. But for the Romans at the time, be under no illusion, for most of the Romans, Jesus was just another rebel. And it's kind of like, what do you do with a rebel? Well, what you've got to do is make it so obvious that they have no power. So the first thing the Romans would do with a rebel would be to strip them, and they'd be naked. Now, at that point, I mean, you don't, we don't need to go into detail, of course, but you know and I know how that would make you feel in public. So you're standing there absolutely naked in front of everybody else who's clothed. <laughs> it's kind of still one of the ways that you humiliate someone. And then you um, mock them. So you put a blindfold on Jesus. And then, because you've heard people say he prophesies, so you play a game with him. Slap his face and go, so who was it then? Come on. And you can beat him up, essentially. But it's not just beating up, it's actually mocking. <laughs> You're not that good, are you? You didn't even know who hit you. And then, of course, you can spit on them because it's like they're worthless. And then you put them through a whipping, a flogging. A naked man who's been mocked is now taken into a public space. And, and as sad as it would be, and I suspect it would still happen today, there's always people who turn up to watch. And now you're the most weak you could ever be. 
Because 39 lashes, well, not many of us would survive that sort of stuff. But it's kind of like, look at him. So you have this bloody mess. And then you make the man who you thought was a rebel against Rome. You're now getting close to finishing him off. But let's just, just two things we can do to him now. So it's not enough just to strip him. It's not enough just to beat him. It's not enough just to mock him. What we can do now is we'll make him carry his own execution tool. It's kind of like, it's the supreme irony, isn't it? You're made to carry the very thing on which you will be killed. And so you drag this execution tool through the town to the place where they're going to execute you. And then they stretch you out on it and they smash nails into your hands and into your feet and then they erect the cross. And you and other criminals are there in the heat of the sun and people are watching on. And the, the reason you do it if you're a Roman governor is not because you're cruel, though it is cruel, the reason you do it as a Roman governor is because you want to tell the whole world, don't rebel against Rome. Because this is what we do to people who think there's another way. That's why you crucify people. Because nobody in their right mind is going to dare do it. And what... As a Roman governor, what you've done is with this pathetic, now broken man on the cross, you have stripped any power from him. And you can say to the followers, there's your king. Not much of a king, is he? And Paul, when he writes to the Colossians with all of that, is saying, but you know what? The remarkable thing is that that broken man hanging on a cross, desperately trying for breath, desperately thirsty, desperately dying, actually at that point, something else was happening. And he disarmed the powers that put him there. Now, I don't know about you, but that takes some thinking about. He disarmed the powers and authorities that put him there. So the ones who thought they were in charge suddenly are no longer in charge. So the ones who thought they'd won, suddenly you haven't won. Actually, that very act of crucifixion disarms. Let me read it again. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, it goes further. He makes a public spectacle of them through the cross. So in other words, the very thing that the Romans thought they were doing to Jesus, Jesus, Paul says Jesus was doing to the powers and authorities. And there's two questions, aren't there? How and what? Everybody knew, looking at him on that cross, if you were a Jew, you would only ever imagine that Jesus is there because he's a sinner and you know he's God-forsaken. Literally. And the, rebel, uh, and the Rome says he's a rebel and he's a failure. But Paul says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He did to the powers what they tried to do with him. 
So who are these powers and what are they? If you've, if you've got your Bible within sort of reach, um, just flick back to the first chapter of Colossians and verse 16 for a moment. When you talk about these powers and authorities, there's some obvious sort of like figures that these could be. There's the Roman authorities. They're clearly a force. And there's the Jewish leadership. They're clearly a force because they are able to hand over uh, people like Jesus to the Romans. But there's something else. It's not just human rulers that's making this happen. He's saying actually there's spiritual forces here. In verse, chapter 1, verse 16, uh, Paul writes this. He says in verse 15, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now what Paul is doing in that part of the letter is exploring how does, how does life work? Now, you will have experienced this for yourself sometimes. Um, and if I use one or two examples, hopefully you can sort of find your own. Um, I was once talking to a senior leader of a church denomination. And I said they, there were some obvious changes that probably should be uh, introduced that would make their denomination healthier. And this was a senior, senior leader. And I said... And, and they were talking to me and they were saying, these changes need to, make, need to happen, but I don't think they will uh, because it, it's not possible. And I said, well, you're in charge. And they said, no, I don't have enough authority to make those changes. And I said, so who does? And they said, no one does. And it felt like almost they were gripped by a force. In other words... Nothing can happen around here. Something's got hold of it that makes it less than it should be. Sometimes we use the language of economic forces. I don't know enough about economics, and some of you will do, but I don't know enough about economics to know why, for example, the whole world can be in global recession. It feels like, because I'm really simple, it feels like you're in recession if you're not making enough money and you owe more than you are making. But if we're all in that situation... <laughs> who, do, who, who, who do we owe the money to? <laughs> and, and can't we do something about that? Do you remember, those of you that are old enough, do you remember Live Aid? Do you remember Bob Geldof? That paragon of uh, good language. Do you remember him, him, him saying to Margaret Thatcher, I think it was around that time, and I can't say what he said because A, I can't remember and B, probably the last sermon I ever preached here. But he just said, you, it can change, it must change. I mean, the thing that Bob Geldof kept doing was just saying, it has to change. And the politician was going, no, it's not that simple. And you're kind of left thinking, well, what's going on there? Where are the forces? Economic forces, market forces. Some of you will have been in work contexts where actually the culture of the workplace is so toxic. It's been created over a period of time. and it's, it's almost like if we remove the person who's in charge, maybe we'll change, but it doesn't change. It just carries on. It's almost like it has an inner, inner force. I think that's what Paul's talking about. But what Paul says is you have human rulers, people in leaders, 
But you also have spiritual forces that pull against God's goodness. The big story of the Bible is this, you know it really well, is we, are, we were created for God, by God, to bring glory to God. That's what he says in the verse 15 and 16. But actually, we're fallen, we're broken. We're brilliant, but we're broken. And the very things that should have been for God, actually, they pull away from him. The story, the, the Genesis story is this. Humans decide we'll do it without God. Essentially, that's the story. We'll do it without God. We'll do it without reference to God. So in other words, we'll, we, we take on our own decision-making. And the Bible has enough indications to say that actually in the spiritual realms, in those forces realms, there were forces that decided to do exactly the same. Demonic, the devil, Satan, the accuser, decided to take on, we'll do it without reference to God. And Christ comes. Christ comes to redeem all things, to bring all things together. Why does Jesus spend so much of his ministry delivering people who are demonized? Partly because it's like, yeah, can you see how things grip people? And I've come to set them free because I'm redeeming all things. And then one day, full restoration. We live between redemption and restoration. That's where we're living. And um, one of the ways to explain this, I think, so let me just take a breath. Let me just pause. Because all of that, I think, is true, obviously, as I was saying it. And, but all of it can sound very abstract. And some of you, because you're really practical, some of you are going, yeah, but, so what? And I think this is the so what bit. The way it affects us as individuals. The world, the big story is we're created, we're broken, we'll, we are being redeemed. That's the big story, yeah? You're with me. So think about alcohol. What's alcohol created for? Well, it's created for joy. That's why alcohol was, or the ingredients of alcohol was created. You put certain things together, good grapes, ferment, I'm at the end of my knowledge. <laughs> Sugar. I'm, I'm at the end of my knowledge. I don't know anymore. <laughs> Grapes, ferment, barrel, bottle, glass, joy. That's the, that's the sequence of events. Okay? It's why at any celebration you will have champagne or Prosecco or something overrated. It's interesting that the first miracle is water into wine at a wedding, the fullness of joy. What's alcohol created for? Joy. Where's the brokenness in alcohol? Addiction. What does Christ do to redeem this? Freedom. Freedom for some to say, actually, I can live without and still be joy. <laughs> or freedom with. The freedom to say... Do you want another one? The freedom to go, no, I'm fine, thanks. I'm just the right side of joy. Yeah? Created, broken, redeemed. And I know for some of you, the redeemed bit is, and I don't need it. And that's equally a good solution. 
sex. What's it created for? Commitment. Where's the brokenness? Now, the problem with bro- the brokenness and sex is it's on just so many different levels. I've actually just popped in the Greek word, porneia, which is a, a, a Greek word from which we get porn, obviously. But it kind of just sits there for infidelity. It sits there for abuse. It sits there for porn. It sits there for no commitment. It sits there for all the stuff that gets broken. There's a TV program that I'm not sure I should recommend necessarily. So maybe just read this as a confession. Called Fleabag. You're probably far too holy ever to even, and it's on at 10.30, so all good Christians are in bed at 10.30. Um, But um, I was watching an episode last night on Catch Up, and um, the central character um, has uh, fallen in love for... A priest. I'm not sure how this is going to... Next week I might be coming back and I don't think you should watch this at all. (laughs) And um, she's very much woman of the world in her, I don't know, I guess early 30s, single. um, But absolutely discipled by the culture, surrounding culture. So you meet someone, you fall in love with them, you sleep with them. It's the obvious thing to do. And this priest is young and... um, Attractive to her, I don't know how you measure that sort of stuff, but is, and um, and he sits, says to her, uh, he's given her a Bible to read, which she's uh, uh, engaging with, and um, but he says, you know, come and talk to me. So they they meet up for talk, and they 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 meet and they talk, and he says to her, we're not going to sleep together. Now, remember, this program is not being aired for Christian youth groups. All right? It's just for the general public. And he says, we're not going to sleep together. And she does that thing where she breaks the fourth, what's it called? The fourth fourth wall. Where she turns to us watching it and goes, he will. And he goes, no, I won't. Because it's not really what you need. And he goes on, and I'm paraphrasing, to say, it's what you think you want, but it's not. Which was really remarkable in a program that was built, made for the culture. The brokenness says, actually, we'll use it for our own ends. What's the healing, the redemption, wholeness? I'm single, I make a commitment to Christ. I can live wholly as celibate. I made a commitment to Christ, I'm in a relationship. I'll give my all to that relationship. Not stray outside of the boundaries of that. Money, the possibility, what does, why is money created? Or the exchange of goods, if you prefer... Because of the possibility of what it makes possible. What, where's the brokenness, the anxiety? What's the redemption? Generosity. I can give this away. It doesn't own me. Work. Creative. That's why we work. Where's the brokenness, the stress? Where's the redemption? We offer it as worship. And relationships. 
We're created, and the createdness is that we're different from one another. We are different, and that's great. But where's the brokenness where we become isolated or we become prejudiced? So the difference that we were created for becomes a prejudice where I can't receive you. And where's the redemption? We become complete together. Created, broken, redeemed. You can find perhaps yourself there or certainly alternative ways of thinking about it. I suppose this, these forces, the brokenness, becomes a force. Some of you know the anxiety, the stress, the isolation. Some of you will be struggling with the pornea. Some of you may will well be struggling with the addiction. And you know the force, but actually Christ and the cross comes and says, I've stripped those powers. You don't need to live under the force of those powers any longer. For yourself. The nearest you can talk about it is it's the parable of the elephant. The elephant is chained by a very flimsy chain, really, when you consider how big an elephant is. And you ask someone, you ask the elephant um, owner, how come the elephant can be restrained by such a feeble chain? And the answer is because when the elephant was a very small young elephant, the chain was stronger than the elephant. And the elephant never knew that as he grew older and stronger, that the chain didn't change. You can be free from the things that hold you. Because Christ took the power and principality on the cross and stripped them of their powers. It's in us and it's around us. I'm going to do something that I've never done before in church. Um, before. Uh, <laughs> he's just said, oh no. <laughs> he hates it when I say that sort of thing. <laughs> What's he going to do? I'm going to interview my wife, uh, Maggie. Um, we've not seen each other very much these last few weeks, and so she said, we never talk. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the truth is that um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, were, uh, we weren't here on the Sunday, as you know, maybe. Uh, we were on, in a car going to Glasgow um, for a, a birthday party. It's the furthest I've ever been for a birthday party. And, um, and as you do when you're in a car together for uh, three, four hours, is you have time just for unstructured conversation that you sometimes don't get um, in your normal life. And one of the things that we were talking about um, was uh, a period when Maggie was working and earning her way. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> when Maggie was working full-time um, for a local authority. And um, I suppose, I mean, obviously, um, obviously, you know, being together through that period, I, I knew a lot about it, but I don't think we'd ever had chance or I'd had chance to listen at length to Maggie tell the big story about her involvement there. And so I kind of wanted just to give a chance to ask her some questions for you. I hear you're going to be a grandma. That's true, yeah. Do you think your husband's going to make a good granddad? That's my first question. Oh, <laughs> very, very much so. Okay, Max. Um, do, you, do you want to tell people what you did? Um, uh, what, what your job was? 
Um, I think before I start, I have to sort of say um, this is obviously quite sensitive in some ways because, uh, as you'll find out, and I would appreciate it if it wasn't sort of spread, and I think for that reason it won't be recorded. <laughs> um, I worked... The reason I want you to listen to some of that, it's no bad thing to hear what each of us within the church community carry and the situation we're in, that to be honest, many people would never guess. And you're probably, some of you will be in a similar situation. But in this context of talking about it this morning, when we talk about the powers that hold and the powers that are broken and the redemption that comes, it's easy for it just to look individual. But actually, you're sent in the power of the Spirit to engage in the world around you. When the powers would pull against what God would want. And you're called to be part of the redemptive process of how do you pull this stuff back into God's good created order. But there's a cost involved. But reason, and you know, obviously there were lots of times when should we stay, should Maggie stay, should she go, would we manage if, etc. Those sort of conversations that some of you have had. But the thing that Maggie kept saying to me is, but God asked me to go. And it wasn't until she felt released to leave that she was able to. So the power of the cross is this that the powers that hold you have been broken. You can live in freedom. The powers that hold the world against God have been broken. You can. It's like the, the old analogy. It's like D-Day. D-Day was the landing when actually everything was finished. But actually V-E Day was when everybody celebrated. The cross was D-Day. When Christ comes back, will be V-E Day when we all celebrate. In the meantime, go and mop up. Go and serve. Go and declare to the powers. Actually, you don't get the final word around here. Go and declare. Actually, I'm not afraid of you. Go and declare. Death doesn't get the final word here. Go and declare. Actually, I'm going to work in the opposite spirit to that. And I know that that is never easy. And believe me, I know that's not easy. But actually, that's the power of the Spirit, and that's where you're sent to declare to the world the power of the cross. Amen.